May these spoken words be faithful to the written word and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I'm what's known as a light eater. As soon as it gets light, I start eating. (laughs) But I've just finished what is being called, or has been called, living below the line. And the line is one pound per day on food and drink. There are 1.4 billion people in the world who live below that line. And this week, I was one of them. But next week, I won't be. I'll be back on the normal Western diet because I chose to live on one pound a day and 1.4 billion people in the world can't make that choice. So what does one pound buy? Less than half a coffee at Starbucks? One third of a sandwich? One and a half Snicker bars? It's really not much. But I married a mathematician and she's been brilliant at working out quantities and uh, substances and keeping me going through a pretty hectic week. So it's been porridge in the morning and lentil soup at lunch and dal in the evening. The low point came on Wednesday night when I was hosting a, a very splendid dinner at Christ Church. And while everyone else was on their fancy food and their fine wines, I was on dal and water. But two weeks ago, I'm somewhat now ashamed to say, I had a meal out with a friend in London which cost £80. That was £40 each. That was 40 days of that diet. Well, okay, it's a gimmick, in a sense, for Christian Aid Week, but it's a gimmick with a purpose. The world is an incredibly unequal place. The richest 5% of the world's population owns almost 70% of the world's wealth. I'm told, though it sounds crazy, that the wealth of the world's three richest individuals is greater than the combined GDP of the 48 poorest countries of the world. The statistics are truly mind-boggling. If 10% of the world's military budget were spent instead on aid and development, 10%, that would take care of all the basic food, health and educational needs of the world's poor. But as it is, as we know, 30,000 children will have died today of diseases related to hunger and poverty, one every three seconds. It's a silent holocaust. And I think this scandal of global inequality will probably be seen by future generations as the most enormous blind spot of the late modern period. Now, I say all this, and I do my little bit last week, not to make us feel guilty, because there's not much point in that approach, I don't think. I do it because I believe in each one of us is a deep instinct for justice. We're hardwired for justice and we don't want the world to be the way it is. 
And I think that's a God-given instinct, an equalising instinct, that we can try and ignore or bury, and gosh, we do that, but it won't go away. And it was epitomised for me by Jesus, who went on constantly about giving every single person the opportunity to flourish. He released them and encouraged them and empowered them. I've come that everyone should have life and have it abundantly, he said. It's not, ab- it's not abundant to be living on less than one pound a day, I can tell you. The other thing that living below the line has been pointing out to me this week is the danger of our addiction to economic growth. Now, in a college with Sir Derek as provost, I know I'm entering highly dangerous territory here, but let's plough on. Tim Jackson, the Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey, in his book Prosperity Without Growth, lines up with many other experts, like Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, to argue that prosperity is possible without growth in GNP. And indeed, it will soon be impossible with growth in GNP. He says, the idea of a non-growing economy may be an anathema to an economist, but the idea of a continually growing economy is an anathema to an ecologist. He says that the idea that you can decouple growth in GNP from the use of resources through increased efficiency is a myth. Get real, he says. So we need to consume less stuff and look for a type of prosperity in places other than the conventional trappings of affluence. So look for it in relationships and community and family and vocation in a life which values the future. But how do we stop the train that's flying headlong towards the crash? Perhaps we need a different worldview, a different framing story to live in. It doesn't start with tinkering with systems. It starts with a different vision. And Isaiah in today's reading and about the nature of fasting, true fasting. And Jesus, in all his teaching in the Gospels, he offers an alternative vision of a kingdom of the common good. Examine all Jesus' teaching, his parables, his prophetic actions, from this perspective of the kingdom of the common good, and you'll find a radical and exciting hope for a new world now. Not a fluffy escape to an insubstantial heaven after death. Your kingdom come on earth, he prayed. So Caesar's worldview, for example, of a kind of hierarchical domination is suicidal, said Jesus. Transfer your trust to a new worldview where everyone benefits and everyone knows their limits. And see how everything then comes to life. You you simply can't live on more and more bread, he says. 
The addictive behaviour of, of mega-consumption is a dead end, literally, both for the rich and for the poor, because our exhausted planet just can't sustain it. But there is this glorious alternative, says Jesus. The problem then was that the entrenched powers living in the old narrative couldn't begin to countenance a new framing story. So they destroyed it, they thought, on Good Friday. There's no progress in human society without cost. Something has to change at the level of fundamentals, at the level of vision, of worldview, of the framing story that we live in. And that, of course, is where faith and religion operate. There's a parable about a very large table covered with a huge tablecloth where great numbers of us are sitting and feasting. And the table is groaning with good food and every seat is taken except one, which is just saved for someone called the unseen guest, whoever that is. And occasionally we're aware that there's something going on under the table because a hand appears or occasionally we hear a cry. There must be a great crowd under there, we think. And it seems they have no food because if food falls off our table, it's suddenly grabbed. And sometimes we pass the odd plateful down. Sometimes we just push them back under the table. And then suddenly Jesus comes into the room and we expect him to go and sit at the seat for the unseen guest. But actually he goes and dives underneath the table. And this is rather disappointing. In fact, we feel somewhat affronted. Especially when we hear laughter and singing and freedom songs coming from underneath the table and then the tablecloth is lifted and Jesus comes out with a small child and then a whole procession of people come out behind him and they begin quietly to circle the whole of our table and everything goes quiet something has to happen And then someone round the table suggests that if we shorten the table legs radically, if we cut them right down, then the cloth that's over the table would spread out so much more and we'd all be able to sit round this same table. Shall we do that, he asks. Shall we shorten the legs, stretch out the cloth, make room for everyone? And that's the question that the world keeps ducking. And that's why I've been eating dal each night, to remind myself that there is another way. Amen.